We made USAA insurance for veterans like James. When he found out how much USAA was helping members save, he said, It's time to switch. We'll help you find the right coverage at the right price. USAA. What you're made of, we're made for. Restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Boys in the Band podcast, where we bring you exclusive interviews with the musicians who soundtrack the Norsey's indie scene. I'm Richie Gallagher. And I'm Peter Smith. And on today's show, we speak to North London's finest, The Holloways. With big hits like Generator and Two Left Feet, The Holloways' debut album, So This Is Great Britain, was essential listening upon its release in 2006. There are regulars in the NME, loads of airplay on XFM, friends with Pete Doherty, and their gigs were famed for their energy. But there have been tough times too. We will hear about how a tragic overdose, a band shattering fire, and the rapper Pitbull stalled their momentum. I think when we played the Scala, when we headlined the Scala, and that was absolutely rammed, and then like we had stage invasion and there were fire extinguishers going off all over the place, and then about I think it was sort of the following Wednesday or whenever the enemy came out and it said, "If the Holloways carry on like this, they'll be the biggest band in the world by the end of the year." You know, and we believed it. We thought this is it. We, you know, we've we've done it. We're, we're going to be famous and rich. That's the voice of lead singer and guitarist Alfie Jackson, and when we caught up with him and bass player Bryn Fowler, we covered a wide range of topics. From the North London scene they lit up with their infectious tunes, through to the bad luck which ultimately put an end to the band first time round. But they're back, and all things being well, off on a special tour in October 2020, with fellow Norsey's band The Futureheads and Reverend and the Makers. So we also quizzed them about the reasons why they've come out of retirement to go again. Yeah, it's a fascinating chat, and if you're a Holloways fan, you're really going to enjoy it. Then check out our social media channels. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search Boys in the Band Pod. But for now, here are the Holloways. Now I'm delighted to say we have two of the Holloways on the line. Singer and guitarist, David Alfie Jackson. Alfie, how are you? All right. Good, how are good. You? Yeah, very good. Thank you, mate. Very good. And we've got bass player Bryn Fowler. Bryn, how's it going? Yeah, good, thanks. Excellent. Great to have you on the show, boys. Um, now, like any good gig, we kick off these shows with a section that we like to call the sound check. Just three quick questions. And the first one, uh, given that we battle with technology to speak over Skype this afternoon uh, because of the lockdown, we just want to check in with you guys and see where in the world are you. So, uh, so Bryn, how about you start us off? Where are you? Uh, I am currently in a little place called Litchfield. Uh, it's just north of Birmingham. It's uh, in my uh, spare room. And then it looks beautiful from here. Cheers, Rin. How about you, Alfie? Um, I'm out in Austria, in the Austrian countryside. Ah, what takes you out there, then? Uh, well, it's certainly not the tax. <laughs> it's the highest rate of the ta- tax in the universe. Um, now, my, um, my now fiancé, I've, I've lived out here for three years. We met in London, but I uh, moved out here in 2000, end of 2016, it was. Right, nice. nice. Whereabouts in Australia are you, mate? Uh, the nearest city is Graz. It's the yeah. sort of southeast corner, not far from Hungary. Cool. So what is it, skiing in, the, uh, skiing in the winter and walking in the hills in the summer? Well, actually, uh, not, not that close to any of the skiing stuff. Nearest skiing place is about, about an hour away. Okay. I had to go at it once. I could only turn left. I couldn't turn right. <laughs> I was like Zoolander on skis. <laughs> It becomes a bit of a problem, doesn't it? If you can only go one way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's all right for a little while, and then uh, you can start to run into trouble. So, guys, next question. What bands are you listening to right now? Who should we all be going out and listening to? Sports team. Sports team? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bryn, who's uh, floating your boat at the moment? 
Oh, it helps your man for that. He's always been into the good stuff. Yeah. You know, I've, I'm down to my uh, old, old record collection. I'm trying to, uh, <laughs> trying to trying to go non-digital for a while. So literally just what I've, what I've got left over. So I'm, I've been listening to some Weezer mixed in with some Beatles and a little bit of Rolling Stones as well. Oh, nice mix. I like that. Weezer, man. First time I ever saw live. Well, Weezer one? Yeah, first gig. Oh, man, that's nice. My first gig was Jamiroquai, so you're, you're a little bit cooler than mine. Ah, well, talking about gigs, guys, final sound check question is, what about the, the best gig you've been to recently, uh, looking back over the past year or so? Oh, I actually I'm go to see Weezer just over a year ago, which was pretty <laughs> awesome. Um, it was really, really cool, actually. I'd never seen them live, and they were one of my, uh, they were one of my bucket list bands, so I was pretty happy to go and see those guys. Cool. I didn't think we'd be talking about Weezer so much in the first uh, five minutes of this podcast. <laughs> Love it. Weezer are great, man. <laughs> oh, respect They've them. been doing all those 80s covers, haven't they? Yeah, they did that uh, 80s track Africa, didn't they? Yeah, Weezer were actually an early discovery for me as well when I, was, I first started working in a second-hand record shop when I was about 16 or something. And uh, it was the Blue Album. The Blue Album was, uh, was like the go-to album put, to put on the stereo for one of the other guys that worked there. Uh, so I've got him to thank for first bringing him to my attention. But what a great band. Yeah, yeah. B- big fan ever since. Do you yeah, get, to, nah, get to make gigs out in Austria, Alf? Is there much of a scene out there at the moment? Uh, uh, not really. I mean, that's, that's one of the, along with the tax, it's one of the... Um, <laughs> I'm not going to let it go. <laughs> never. Yeah, that's one of the one of the problems as well. Is I'm sort of out of the loop of meeting people and getting to small gigs and bigger gigs. I mean, you can get to Vienna in a couple of hours, Graz in an hour, but it's a bit of a mission. You're gonna have to drive yourself there, and obviously then you can't drink. And not so idea. that's yeah. But I mean, I get I come over to to the UK to London to do songwriting sessions. So I do a lot of co-writing and production stuff now. Right, okay. And I come over sort of every six weeks, and then I stay for about three weeks. That's sort of ratio. So when I'm there, I sort of dive in to London life again, and it's quite nice as the novelty factor sort of kicks in. Nice, yeah. Have a little uh, binge on London music, and then yeah, head back to the Austria. I like it. So guys, yeah, on the... yeah it's like two little lives. Good. Good, good. So on the Boys in the Bank podcast, guys, we're all about rewinding 15 years or so back to uh, when that indie scene was live and kicking. And obviously Holloway's were right in the heart of that era, weren't they? So, Alf, when you wind the clock back like that, what are the sort of standout memories of the early days of, you know, setting up the band, um, you know, loads of indie bands emerging and kicking off in the country? Um, yeah, <laughs> what, do you, what do you think about when you, when you think back to those early days? Trying to think of things that I, I won't regret saying. Um, <laughs> a lot of good stuff. Um, well, one of the uh, the best memories was just the first time that um, me and Bryn met, and Dave met Rob because uh, Dave was working at Nambuka, and me and Bryn, well, Bryn actually worked there as well, doing a bit of sound engineering, and I just sort of came and drank and played 1943 on the on the little arcade machine. And uh, the, the night Rob played at this open mic, Sensible Sundays, it was called at Nambuka. He, you know, everyone played sort of three or four songs and Rob played for about two hours and they just couldn't get him off the stage. And I, me- I remember our girlfriends were all like, you've got to have him, he's really good looking. And <laughs> yeah. So his, his, his passion to just keep on playing combined with the fact that the girls thought he was hot. Me and Bryn both were like, yeah, he's, he's our man. I think it was the following weekend, Dave let us, me and Rob have a little jam in his bedroom and then we came down and played some songs that same day. And then Dave was like, right, I'm going to join the band as well. So just, you know, it's always the beginnings of things, I think, are the, the things that are the most exciting. 
Yeah, definitely. And um, and you mentioned Nambuka there as well. So uh, obviously that's the gig venue on the Holloway Road that became synonymous with the band. So, um, so Bryn, give us a feeling for what it was like on some of the early nights at that place when you were first starting out. I know there was a, a story about you jumping on to support Baby Shambles pretty last minute, uh, very early on, wasn't there? Well, that was actually, uh, I think it may have been our first actual gig. It was either first or second gig. I think it was our first. Um, so anyway, that's by the first London gig. Um <laughs> We, uh, Dave um, lived upstairs from Nambuka. Jay, our manager, lived upstairs. And uh, like our friend, I, I was working there doing the sound. So we, we were pretty well ingrained in, in Nambuka. And we got a phone call on the way back from rehearsal. And um, and it was back when Baby Shambles had a girl called Gemma playing the drums. Yep. And she knew Dave really well. And she, and it was, and she phoned up Dave and she said, look, we're, uh, we, Baby Shambles have been kicked off the stage for... Uh, uh, an XFM, I think it was Winter Wonderland or something, some XFM gig in, te- in Central, and they weren't allowed to play because uh, they were late. I don't know the full story about why not, so I don't want to land myself in trouble by making something <laughs> up. But they couldn't play the gig. Can we come and play at Nambuka? Um, uh, and Dave was like, yeah, yeah, sure. And Gemma was like, yeah, but the condition is, I want to see this new band that you're in, so you've got to play. <laughs> and uh, it took us about 10 minutes to convince Dave it was a really good Dave idea. Dave really wasn't it. loving it, was he? Yeah, he just did. He was like, no, we're not ready. We're not ready. But, uh, but we did it in the end. And you know what? You could have asked for more of an exciting start to London. You know, 350 absolutely manic fans who'd raced over from central London and wherever they were. You know, this is before Facebook and Twitter and those kind of things could really get messages out. This was all a couple of message boards and texting out. And, um, and it was, yeah, it was absolutely manic. And then, you know, and then Shambles going afterwards. Pete's always been really good at putting on a show. You know, we've been fortunate enough to play with them a few times and, uh, you know, they are a bit of a shambles, but it always yeah. seems to work really well. And following from there, you know, things really kicked on quite quickly for the Holloways, didn't they? I know you started getting a pretty serious following and you gigged and gigged, got on enemy tours and that sort of thing, uh, getting plenty of radio play too. Uh, so as things really started to escalate, it must have felt as though you were almost kind of riding the crest of a wave. Um, so it must have been an exciting time. What particular moments stick in the memory from from that rise off? Um, there are a few things. Um, I think when we played the Scala, when we headlined the Scala, and that was absolutely rammed. And then, like, we had stage invasion, and there were fire extinguishers going off all over the place. And then about, I think it was sort of the following Wednesday or whenever the enemy came out, and it said, "If the Holloways carry on like this, they'll be the biggest band in the world by the end of the year." You know, and we believed it. We thought this is it. We, you know, we've we've done it. We're, we're going to be famous and rich. So, so tell us a bit more about that time. Then, so, you know, you mentioned playing with Baby Shams. Obviously, we're big fans of Libertines on this podcast. What's it like supporting Pete Doherty or something like that? What's he like backstage? What's what's it like mixing with these 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 sort of bands? Well, you know, they're all they're all they're all regular. Most of them are regular people. At the end of the day, <laughs> yeah. it's a funny one. Pete's a funny one because he he is he was. I say was, because obviously, I mean, we don't know him so much now. He was that caricature, you know. He was late all the time, quite <laughs> epically at times. We had to play twice at a gig once because he wasn't there on time, and we had to lend them equipment often uh, and things like that. Um, I mean, there's a great time. We were in Paris, actually, at the Bataclan, the famous place that got got attacked. We were supporting them there, and uh, no one's phone would work in France because we were all poor musicians. <laughs> I think my phone was the only place that We ended up having to phone Kate Moss to find out where in paris pete was to come to a gig and you know things like that were exciting <laughs> you got times that we supported um noel gallagher at the uh at coco once and uh, and i remember um liam came to use the toilet in our in our uh in our 
dressing room and he was really small. I don't think he was in the toilet. I remember just looking at you, Alf, and going like, is that actually He's really small. Is that actually, you know, he's obviously he's not that small, but I was expecting a big bloke, you know, never seen him before, only seen him on TV. I was expecting 6'16263, and he was, you know, 5'9, five, 5'10. Five, yeah. It was, it it was, was just the same with famous people. You always think they're going to be big, and they're often not. Apart from Des Lynham and Bruce Forsyth. <laughs> they're, they're both big men. <laughs> Um, so the scene was live and kicking then guys and actually you mentioned well we've, we've mentioned Pete there and I was reading up a little bit about I was sort of taking a little trip down memory lane reading about Frog the club night that Dave, Dave was involved in running right and yeah because um, yeah. You know, yeah, me and my mates invariably ended up there at Mean Fiddler I remember bands turning up at like silly o'clock like after they'd already played across London somewhere else I remember Ash turning up and just playing like surprise gig and, and the, whoever yeah, performed was always a surprise, weren't they? Yeah, and that was That's so that Dave and, and our manager Jay started. They had a little a little thing at the garage in Highbury Corner, um, and then they moved it over to the Mean Fiddler. Yeah, and it was yeah it was great fun. I mean, it, you know, I think um, I think Razor actually filmed a uh, live performance there that was used in part of their Christmas number one single. Oh, yeah, right. you're right. Um, yeah. Or the crowd in it, the crowd or something like that was using it. It was a huge deal, man. Just like two mm. regular guys living above a pub. That was the great thing about that scene, you know. It was a load of regular people just doing exciting things and people wanting to go in and doing it. And every pub was a every pub was a gig venue and every gig was good. It was crazy. You you know, you go to you know, any pub and there'd be a corner person on and there'd be a really outstanding musician and then you'd find out it was you know justin who turned you know the guy from the vaccines or frank turner just trying out to play some little weird bits that isn't his million dead stuff or or alfie or you know loads of stuff like that would just be going on it was amazing you know alfie obviously say you, you come back and you have a little uh, as we said like a little binge on the londoners do you think that that seems to ex- like that or that element of that seems to exist where you can turn up in places and find like these amazing musicians performing because for me I, I i don't see that quite so much i live in, in no London. no it, it depresses the hell out of me that's why i spend most of my time on youtube watching videos from the 80s just hoping it'll take me back in time <laughs> not that we were around in the 80s i'm just obsessed with 80s music and culture at the moment i don't know why um <laughs> all, all nostalgia welcome on this pod mate um, but those nights at the Frog Club night, they were brilliant, weren't they? I remember so many great bands, great DJ sets. I seem to remember seeing The View play there a bunch of times. But um, what other bands were you knocking about with that you enjoyed, like particularly not just like musically wise, but socially as well? Who did you get on with? Um, uh, the uh, the guys from the Wombats were quite good friends. I had Pigeon Detectives as well. You know, those those two were guys that we spent a lot of time with. It was interesting because you know you, you touched on what happened to us. You know, uh, we were quite a quick kind of rise pardon me and we um you know we we missed a lot of london you know we we went on tour i remember one year we went on tour february 3rd 12th 13th no we didn't come back until christmas and so it was really it was an interesting time because we made friends with all the bands we were on tour with you know like and you know, that's what i said like the wombats and the pigeons were really good friends frank turner was and still remains a really really good friend of the band and uh, things and out i mean who were you hanging about with at that time i'm trying to think i mean there were so many bands that were we sort of you'd play with who were uh, you know the supernovas were like lived near us didn't they so i remember yeah. the first time we met them i think it was at the pleasure unit in bethnal green and, and you know they were our mates weren't they they were the boys yeah. who were always hanging around with us and a lot of the bands that we played with a lot who sort of came to a lot of the nambuka stuff you'd have the likes of uh justin's bar mitzvah um 
these are people at bases. I just remember being always in the same sort of club nights that we were. Twisted Charm, remember Twisted Charm? Twisted Charm, I love those guys. This yeah. is a London scene, this yeah. is a London scene. Joe Cazelles as well. Cazelles, yeah. Rob played in Larrick and Love for a while as well. So he knew those guys quite well. But then it is the thing, you've got these fans that are mates, and as soon as you go on tour, you don't see them for a year, you come back and they're away on tour somewhere else. It's a really, it's, it's a crazy, it was an absolutely crazy time because I think. Yeah, we were probably part of that last generation of bands that you started a band and you gigged and gigged and gigged and then suddenly got signed and pow, you're on tour for a year, two years. Mm. And uh, and it, it's, it's crazy, man. It's exactly what you want it to be. It, it's just your life is a whirlwind of aeroplanes and tour buses and talking to people like you. It's brilliant. Yeah. And I guess, I guess, you know, one of the great things that drove all this for you guys was the song Generator. I think if you asked, you know, most people around that time to name a Holloway song, that'd be the first one that would come up, right? So, you know, talk us through this one. How did you write this one? It was a funny one because um, I'd heard sort of Rob singing it in parties or maybe in rehearsals or something sometimes. And I always thought it was a cover. I just thought it was like a Ramones song or something. And then a mate of ours, Tom Frog, the infamous Tom Frog, who was part of this, sort of, it was Dave, our drummer, Jay, our manager, and Tom Frog would just go out everywhere and just tell everybody about Frog and the Holloways, I think. <laughs> and became known as Tom Frog. He still is known as Tom Frog. <laughs> and um, he said, oh, yeah, that's, that, that's the little song Rob's got. It's like Generator thing. And I was like, that's a, it's a Ramon song or something, isn't it? And he's like, no, it's the little thing Rob's got. And I was like, all right. And then we were upstairs. remember it vividly. We were upstairs in, in Nambuka in Dave's bedroom. And there was me, Rob, Dave, and Benjo, who was a hairdresser, who was a good mate at Tom Frog, all sat on David's bed. And, and Rob just sort of had the bare bones, the little chorus bit, and the first bit of the first verse. And then we just sort of sat there, and I sort of came up with a few bits for it. And Rob was sort of playing it like really slow, like, I can get a record player, and yeah. He had this like really slow, sort of chilled vibe, as Rob was to it. And then I wanted to put a bit more energy into it. And I think Dave and, and Bryn really shaped the, the sort of musical edge of it once we got it into the studio. And yes, we were sort of between me, Rob, Dave and Benjo, we were just sort of sat there just sort of bashing out some what it should be about, some of the lyrical stuff. And it just sort of grew with a lot of people sort of influenced. I remember, in, I don't know if it was the same night, me and Frank Turner were in, in the toilet and he helped sort of shape Two Left Feet. And he, had, he was playing some of his songs. We were just like, in this little toilet in Nambuka, shaping songs that went on to be songs we released. But all it, so much happened there in Nambuka. Yeah, you mentioned Two Left Feet, and we were talking about Generated 2, and you know those two particular songs, and actually lots of stuff on the first album, have such a upbeat, innocent, optimistic feel to them uh, that seem to be really the Holloway staple sounds. Um, but there are a lot of other songs on that first record, particularly the title track, where you definitely displayed a certain frustration with society and what was going on around you. Uh, how do you reflect on those elements and the overall sound of So This Is Great Britain? I, I think that first album, the two sides, one side is you know, a lot of Alfie looking at the world and social commentary and where we were living. And then the other side of it is was the scene. I mean, you talk about Generator and Two Left Feet and Dance Floor. Uh, fit for a fortnight, Diamonds and Pearls, you know, those kind of big upbeat ones were what was happening in our day-to-day life. 
And then, so this is great. Britain was stuff that, that, that Alf was so good at writing down about what was happening in other people's lives, what we were seeing kind of happening to, to the country. And I suppose I can't, I've listened to this great Britain recently because we've got the gigs coming up and it's kind of quite, you know, portentous of what's kind of where, where we are now with what's happening and things. You know, it seems like it's taken 15 years for everyone else to realize that maybe what we were doing back then wasn't quite exactly right. And we probably should have done things a little bit differently. It's a funny one, this is great, Ben. I, I, I wrote that on the tube, on the one one sitting on the way to work, when I was still working at ITV, and I was sort of frustrated with the job, and I was sort of reading the paper, the Metro, and, you know, it's at the time when David Beckerman and Victoria Spice Girls were just sort of everywhere, and, you know, I've got a lot of respect for David Beckham these days, but back then, I'm, I'm a huge Leeds fan, so I hated Man U, and I hated <laughs> Beck. <laughs> and it just seemed like they were just, you know, just selling themselves to every product and everything. And I, I sometimes feel a bit guilty for saying these are our whores, which was the lyric. But at the time, you know, when you when you sort of stuck on the underground doing a job you don't like, and you're reading about these people who play for a football team you don't like, doing all these things that you think are a bit materialistic. So I was just, it was just a big rant one morning on the tube, and then I sort of had a an idea to put it into a song and played it to Rob and then Rob just like got rid of all the chords and the way it was going and he, he came up with the sort of the riffs for it and everything and then sort of completely rebuilt it I mean that's what that's what was great when we, me and Rob collaborated I sort of had a lyrical melodical sensibility and Rob was much better at sort of shaping guitar ideas and stuff you know he could write great lyrics and melodies I wrote riffs as well vice versa but I think they were definitely our, our strengths and weaknesses and when we worked together that's when the best songs came out I mean Two left feet was another case in point of that. So this is like what we're talking about now is a real, real sort of high for the band. Sort of really felt like you're on an upward trajectory. I think in, just we go pause for a minute for a break, but then we'll come back and we'll talk about 2008, which I think you guys are pretty much labelled as a pretty crappy year for the band um, in terms <laughs> of what happened. But uh, we'll, we'll talk about that after the break, and then we'll also talk about these comeback shows and uh, what the fans can expect when you're back on stage later this year. We're the Holloways, and you're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. You're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. For more naughty nostalgia, check out our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages, and make sure you hit subscribe to the podcast for more interviews like this. Guys, let's talk about 2008. Record labels, Pitbull, and the fire at Nambuka, which you've previously said cost you loads of momentum. Um, let's talk us through that. Rather tough 12 months for the band. Horrendous. Horrendous personally as well. I think, you know, 2007 and the years building up to 2007, it just seemed like the stars had lined up to pull us up into universal bliss. And then they lined up in the completely opposite trajectory and did a massive dump on us. It's just ridiculous. I mean, we went down to Sawmills February 2008 to start recording the second album thinking we were just going to keep on this upward trajectory. And, you know, Sawmills, that Muse re- re- recorded their first album there, Supergrass had, I think Oasis had. There's so many seminal albums that were really big for us. And we thought, you know, this, this is the dream now. And you, you, we were sitting in those circular windows where Supergrass in the second album had photos. And it was just, it was just mental. And then, like, halfway through the, uh, the recording... Loads of things happened. My girlfriend's dad died. 
my auntie um, had this really bad fall in a supermarket and ever after that was housebound. Then we got a call from uh, JR manager saying the, the label had gone bust and it was just, yeah, and they're not going to give you the rest of the money to finish funding the rest of the album, recording the second album. And it all happened because of something to do with Pitbull, didn't it, Bryn? Well, the label we were assigned to uh, was called TBT, um, which is actually weird. It was founded on, uh, on releasing compilations of TV theme tunes, hence TBT. Uh, weirdly, I don't know why the guy started to do that, but he got a lot of money for it. But in America, they signed a lot of uh, grime and crunk acts, uh, Pitbull, Yingang Twins, um, the Eastsiders, uh, Snoop Dogg was part of that, and Little John, people like that. And basically, um, one of them, uh, yeah, I think it was Pitbull or, or Little John, uh, their album, they sunk basically all their capital into the album and then they actually hadn't made an album. Uh, so the label just ceased to be able to pay their bills. Um, yeah, they went to Chapter 11 in America, which is, you know, slightly different to go and bust over here, uh, which actually froze us instead of, you know, if we were signed to, I don't know, for sake of argument, Sony, and Sony went bust in the UK, we'd have been free to do whatever we wanted to do. But Chapter 11 in America meant that their assets were frozen from their debtors. So we ended up being in a kind of, yeah, in a, a frozen state, which then wasn't helped by the fact that uh, there was a massive fire at Nambuka, um, where we had all of our equipment in the basement and, you know, new work we were doing. Uh, you know, well, pretty much everything. I think the only thing I, I had, my bass guitar wasn't in there. Um, Alf, did you have ever, anything not in there? The Telecaster. Yeah, I've had a guitar, I had a guitar. Um, uh, yeah, everything was gone. And, and a lot of our friends lost their homes as well. Uh, Beans on Toast has got a really good song about it, a pub on Holloway, a pub in Holloway, um, which is pretty succinct about, about kind of what happened to everyone else as well, because it wasn't just us, you know. We lost a lot, and you know, we lost a really good friendship and, and you know, made Rob and Dave really think about the band a lot and, and what they wanted to do. Uh, but a lot of people lost their their whole, you know, not their physical lives, but certainly their whole lives in terms of what they were doing. And you know, we lost we lost our, our work, and lots of other people lost their lives. It was an interesting time. Yeah, pretty awful time. Um, so we know those sorts of events led to Dave and Rob leaving the band, and ultimately Ed and Mike took their places ahead of the second album, No Smoke No Mirrors. And that album, as you say, with the record company stuff, came out over a year later than originally hoped. Uh, you know, it was a different lineup, but it was still very much the Holloways, and it was really well received too at the time. I remember. So, um, how do you feel about that record when you look back on it now? Um, the, the biggest, the thing, the, uh, the overriding feeling when you're thinking about that time is just all the momentum we lost. I mean, that was February when Labour went bust, and we were frozen all the way through 2008, and then it was a fire right at the end of 2008. What was it, November, December? But the labels were interested in the album; they'd heard it, but they couldn't. And they, they didn't want to get involved with the guy who owned TVT either because he was just notorious, like, hard ass to deal with. And so this meant we, we weren't able to release anything, and that meant there was nothing to go out and promote with gigging. So we were just sort of floating around for ages. And then we added, added some songs um, with Ed and Mike in 2009 to try and, you know, freshen it up, I think, for us as much as anything, and the fact that Rob had left, so was quite a, a few of Rob's songs on the second album and it felt a bit weird to release something that Rob wasn't 
no longer involved with. So we, we wrote a few new songs for it, which were AAA, Alcohol, Jukebox Sunshine. <clears throat> and um, I know by, by the time it came out, it didn't feel as relevant as at the time when we'd sort of written it. I mean, when we'd written the second album, most of it was written about two years before it finally came out. So it didn't feel relevant to us. It didn't feel relevant to the, to the scene anymore. And, and like I said, we'd lost so much momentum in the scene. And it was just, yeah, I, I do like the album. I think it, it sounds good. It got some, some good reviews, some bad reviews, as you expect. There's always going to be certain reviews who seem to be just want to write a negative review about you for some reason. <laughs> the, the, the fly magazine. <laughs> the fly hated us. I don't know what one of us did. One of us slept with someone's grandma or something. I don't know. <laughs> but um, yeah, so some of the some of the songs on the second album, I, I, I'm really a big fan of. Um, particularly like the, the opener and and the closer, "Knock Me Down," being the last song. And AAA, when you play it live, it feels like a really good song. And um, despite it not having the great memories attached with that all the songs off the first album did it still feels really good so i think you know it there are some really good songs on that second album say so we'd lost the momentum and it was didn't have the same interest by the time it finally came out so we know we know what what happened was that you ended up playing those that farewell gig in 2011 at the garage and you know just incredible night and but was there a point how far before that point did you guys sort of think yeah this is sort of it's not gonna continue for much longer for me, the time you know when, when I started to talk about it with Alf was when you know it lost the magic of being the band. You know, a, a band should a band should and is when it's flying the most fun and the best job in the world. And when it becomes less of that, when it starts to become a bit more like, oh, what we're we doing today, we're doing this, and, and you know, it's uh, it gets a lot harder. And I, I'm often reminded of, of the lyric in uh, the James lyric in, in Sit Down. You know, if I hadn't seen such riches, I could live with being poor. Because I can remember turning up at gigs and being disappointed and having to remind myself, you know, if this was five years ago, we'd have been amazed that, that, that 150 people wanted to come watch us. Yeah. But when you go from 1,500 people at least down to, you know, 150 people, 50 people, you know, it, it is harder to get motivated by that. And I don't know, it might sound a bit big-headed. It's not about being big-headed. That's why we kind of stopped it, because we were getting to that point of saying, you know what, we should be giving the best gigs we can to people. And we're not right now. And it, it was always intended to be a hiatus, not necessarily a complete stopping. Um, but Rob was Rob was quite keen to play a few songs with us at the end as well. Uh, I'm really glad that we got to do that, obviously, with what happened with him. Um, we never would have got the opportunity to play any more shows with him. So so that was great that we actually got to do that. Yeah, that was amazing. The, the relationship with Rob, it was a bit, you know, after Rob left, it was a bit of a tetchy time particularly between me and me and Rob, I think, for, I don't know, maybe a year. But then once sort of dust had settled and we sort of saw each other out a couple of times, we were, we were really great mates again. And when, it was it was well up for, for doing that. And you can see on the photos, uh, Sinead Skinner took some great photos. You can send, send them over to you if you like. There's a, there's a few of Rob where you can just, you see the look on his face. And, and that's, that's one of the other things. It's not just the, the momentum we'd lost and the, the sort of capacity gigs we were doing. It's also the fun we had, me, Rob and Dave and Brent, was just ridiculous, wasn't it? Just when it was just us four going around in the van, it was just so oh. much fun. And we were playing to three people in Glasgow and we did two encores. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a word of a lie. I think there were, there were two girls and I think three guys from Clash magazine and the bar staff. And we did two encores because 
we just loved playing together that much. We had such a laugh and the blend of personalities and that's what makes a great band. You know, you, you can't just bring someone else in and make it the same, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Stuff like that's really good bonded together as friends, isn't it? Um, it's probably a good point here to, to mention Rob now, isn't it? Um, sadly passed away in 2014, three years after those farewell gigs. Had other projects in between the Holloways, um, but, you know, he, he was integral to the band, wasn't he? So probably a good moment just to give a bit of a tribute uh, to what he contributed to the Holloway's music, to the band, and, and to you guys as friends. Well, I mean, Rob brought in... Well, Rob brought in Rob. I mean, he's, he's just such a funny character. He was kind of... We always called him Space Boy because he was... It's just <laughs> He seems to be on in a different plane sometimes, not quite in the same room as us and it would be hilarious but brilliant at the same time because that's where so much of his brilliance came from um great musician um lovely easygoing natured you know the, just the stuff he could come up with musically was what sh- shaped the holloway sound and his energy and sort of charisma on stage it, w- it was never a competition, but I, it's one of those, when you've got a couple of front men in the band, it sort of, push, you push each other. I think me and Rob really brought out the best in each other, in, not in, just in terms of just writing, but in terms of the energy on stage. And Bryn as well, you know, Bryn, the three of us on stage put in, I think, so, so much energy. Yeah, Rob, Rob had a certain kind of magic. You know, it didn't matter if he was playing to... 25,000 people at Glastonbury or, 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 or in your living room, he'd put in exactly the same show to exactly the same thing because it was yeah, him. He loved it was just it. him the whole time. It was never an act. It was never no. a show. It was just Rob playing the songs that he loved uh, and the and way so that he wanted to play them. I mean, in well. a way, it was a pain sometimes because he'd play bits that you were like, what are you doing? What's this bit of the song? But it was brilliant, you know? It, was just, uh, it, it, it provided that, that level, you know, the reason why the Holloways worked so well, and I think one of the big reasons we started is we had, you know, like me and Dave were, were you know, super reliable basics, you know, like you were going to get the, the bass and the drums were going to come out, they were going to come out 90% right, and it was going to, you know, the song was going to be there. You had Alf writing these Amer- amazing kind of choruses and real kind of vocal hooks. And then you had Rob, who had a bit more license to kind of say, well, you know, you, you do you then, Rob, and, and he's, he you know, did that little sprinkle on the top that was impossible to put your finger on it. And that, that's what he provided, particularly in the early days. You know, I, I don't think I'm stepping out line and say it only worked because of the four of us, you know. It, it, you know, Rob, I think one reason he so much enjoyed coming back was that he found it really hard when he did his own stuff because he didn't have anyone saying, well, hold on, wait, there's got to be a chorus there, Rob. <laughs> you know, or, or wait, that, that this, this makes completely no sense. Like, you know, it needs to make some sense, you know, lyrically or, or, or musically, or there's got to be, you know, um, we're not in a free-form jazz band. So... <laughs> Yeah, that's why it worked so well. Alf brought that to it, and then me and Dave kind of brought it down. And I look like like Generator we spoke about earlier was that thing. It came in to rehearsals as a as kind of a wispy, you know, lots of acapella bits, little twinkly bits. And me and Dave went, "Well, no, you know, this is a great song. It's got to have this." And we you changed the structure, reformed it, and ended up where it is. Yeah, the the balance was was so important, and not not just in terms of writing, not just in terms of performing, in terms of how the band sort of functioned socially as well. It was just, just such a great blend of personalities that all sort of reined in each other's flaws and boosted each other's strengths. 
the number of things that needs work is, is huge to get a, n a number of people to click together like like all great bands do and it's it's rare that happens but it, it really was there and yeah all the, all the things that rob brought were <laughs> things only rob could have brought yeah it seems like a special chemistry that as you say the four of you had which you know contrib contributes to the band uh, I think you see it success in, you had. in a lot of bands and I think I often think you see it in bands that kind of burn out I'd say you know you know the Libertines one of those bands that that if you look at shambles and uh and dirty pretty things and they were both bands with good songs but it was not the magic that you had in Libertines and mm. you know I think it, it's often you see bands kind of push through it too much without recognizing actually you know the magic was this and you know sometimes they get back together and sometimes they don't and sometimes I like with us, you don't have the opportunity to get back together properly. Sure. Well, let's talk about that then, guys. You, you, uh, these October dates, how, how have they come about? Um, what can we expect? And is this the sign of a full-on comeback, or are we just uh, just having a few gigs to, to relive the good old days? At the moment, it's just um, it's just this tour. We've not we've not spoke beyond this. Um, but I mean, I I always say anything's possible. I'm, I I never say never about anything in life. Um, but it's it's going to be great to play with Dave again. Um, I, I played with Dave a few years ago. Me and my mates were doing a just this like mess about covers thing for like a New Year's Eve party, and we didn't have a drummer for it. And Dave said, "Oh, I'll, I'll drum for it." And he, we had a rehearsal, and Dave just got sat down on the drums, and we started playing the first song. And it was like thirty seconds in, and I just turned around, and I was just like, <laughs> "Oh my god!" I just forgot how solid he is. It's, I remember older people who were fans of the Holloways would come up to us and say, oh, your drummer makes your, your band. And I was like, you know, arrogant frontman thinking, <laughs> right, whatever. No, he doesn't. And it's about 30 seconds of playing with him after not playing with him for a few years and playing with what I thought were good drummers. And sat with Dave, played with him for 30 seconds. Like, oh, I get what they meant. He's just, he just makes everything click and glue together. So well, he wasn't. He was never flashy or anything, but oh my god! And he's also one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. It's going to be well, me. Me, Bryn, and Dave had a drink um, a few months ago, and it's funny, isn't it? It was just immediately like old times. When we, three of us hadn't sat down for a few years together, and it's just when you when you're good mates with people, you just sort of click. It's such a shame Rob can't be with us, but it will be in spirit. Yeah, it kind of came about. We just got um, an email. Uh, from someone we, we quite often do get emails you, know, you guys still doing gigs uh, and we always say well what, what are you talking about you know we, we, like i've said we never say never and this one they came back and said, look we've put together a tour uh so far we've got the reverend the makers saying yes and you know i've known john from reverend the makers quite a few years i know, know his little brother chris quite well and uh so i was like well those guys would be good so yeah let's you know stick us down as as, as a as a positive maybe and uh, then they got back to us so future heads as well these the dates and it just seemed like a great opportunity to get back together and you know for us you're gonna it's gonna be a good time set you know it's gonna be great because you know, I spoke earlier on about the the kind of the pressures of feeling like you've got to play to a thousand people every day in it and when it's not that you become a little bit more down about it and, and this is there's no pressure on these gigs you know this is gonna be a good time you know you're gonna get in all the hits you're gonna be forgetting you know the kind of I suppose a super Holloway set. You know, we're not going to be worried. We're not worrying about pushing the music on you on it on down people's throats. We're not worrying about, you know, oh well, we can't do this because in six months' time, when are we doing that? It's like no, we're just going to go full out. It's certainly going to be 
yeah, if you were, you know, if you're an indie fan, it's going to be a tour that you're going to be really sad if you didn't go to because, you know, I, I certainly know future heads are in the same boat as us. You know, they've all got regular jobs. Well, actually, I'm the only one with a job in our band, aren't I? <laughs> um, they're not, you know, they're not, they're not playing regularly like, like, like uh, Rev of the Makers are. You know, and there's lots of bands like us that are still bloody great that everyone wants to go watch that you're going to, um, you know, that, that this is going to be something something else. I think the tour itself is going to be a pretty pretty special night. Sounds good fun, guys. Guys, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. Um, before we go, though, we had a st- sound check at the start. We're going to have a big encore to finish. So three quick fire questions. Uh, Alf, what's the best gig you've ever done? Oh, it will probably have to be... Uh, which Was it Leeds Met Uni, Bryn? I knew you were going to name that one. <laughs> That's amazing. You threw sweets off the balcony at the end. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was and then I wore was about five different lead shirts and put yeah. a different <laughs> lead shirt off. After every song, I had diff- all these different lead shirts on. Um, uh, I don't know. The the energy that night was amazing. It was amazing. Alf, you've mentioned your love of leads a few times. Bryn was telling us about it before you got on the call. Um, will you be in the Premier League next season, or what happens if they have to cancel the season? Scrub it out. You can't cancel the season. <laughs> <laughs> you cannot. <laughs> how, how can Liverpool not be champions? They only need to win one more game. It's ridiculous. <laughs> what, whatever you do is going to be for me. You have to you have to finish this season, whether it means delaying next season and only playing each team once next season. I, I, I agree with you. Then? Yeah, I agree. I think um, they've got to find a way to finish this season. Whenever that's done, and then you know if you have to shorten next season or change change the rules next time around to. To get the games in next season, but as a Millwall fan, it's quite good fun having Leeds in the uh, league. Are you Millwall? Well, yeah, because we always well, we always win at the Den, so that's three points in the in the bag straight away. Oh, and God, then... I hate paying you a lot of your. <laughs> All we we always lose in London though. It's ridiculous. It doesn't matter if it goes to Brentford, QPR. It's just ridiculous. Oh well, I'm I'm a Spurs fan, so in that case, we'll look forward to having you at a bright new stadium. Uh, next year at some point I reckon <laughs> so obviously it's unprecedented times at the moment everyone in lockdown but with with no sport on and no opportunity to get together and rehearse properly uh, question two in the encore is all about what you've been watching uh, what you've watched to, to fill your days so anything stand out anything music related maybe um, I've actually been watching because um, I've got a bit of a, bit, bit of a love for for some hip hop stuff, as I've been watching, there's a new documentary on Netflix called uh, LA, which I really enjoyed. I also really liked um, Hip Hop Evolution, which I rewatched. Uh, it's a little bit departure from indie, but it's just amazingly interesting to watch the evolution of a whole musical scene full of people who can still talk about what it was like to be there. You know, yeah, we don't get that with with with, with the guitar music. You know, there's half the people are unfortunately dead that kind of gave us that. Whereas you've got this scene full of all the people that founded it sitting there telling you what it was like to be there. It's, it's, it's other world now. I've really enjoyed that. Yeah, did you do the Defiant ones as well? Yeah. Yeah, well worth a watch that one. Excellent. Um, how about you, Alf? Anything interesting you at the moment? Um, well, Netflix-wise, um, what we've been watching, we've just, just, because you can't escape it, it just seems to be getting talked about all over the place, that Tiger King thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we just watched a couple of episodes this morning because my girlfriend's off from uh, kindergarten She's not a child. She's a teacher <laughs> in kindergarten. That's raising out. <laughs> um, we watched a couple of episodes of that earlier, and it's just mental. America, I mean, it just sums America up. It's just such a mental place that this this stuff can be going on. Mate, each episode gets stranger, gets stranger and stranger. All right, guys, last question. Last question of the interview. 
look back at your music, what's the song you're most proud of? Crikey. Um, I, mean, I, I think, um, you know, for, for me, it is, so this is Great Britain. I think it is one that, that since Al first, first kind of played it to us and said, you know, what do we think of this? Right until now, I thought, you know, this, this song's, it's not trying to say something, it kind of is saying something in, in the way that isn't preachy and isn't kind of, you know, isn't trying to, isn't trying to tell you something, but it is telling you something. Nice, it's a good choice. Um, for me, it's a toss-up between Most Lonely Face and Happiness and Penniless. Um, both written about, you know, again, like Bryn said earlier, things that were just sort of going on. I, I used to work, like I say, at ITV, and it, at King's Cross at that time was much more dilapidated than it is these days. Um, and there were a lot of prostitutes hanging around the area, and I used to see them every day, morning and, and night, it just used to make me really sad, and I just ended up sort of watching him and writing writing this song. And so that 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 one, um, I always found very emotive. And yeah, happiness and penniless, just purely because I thought that summed up the lifestyle. Going back to Tom Frog again, he would always be like, "It's like playing." It's like, this is my song, and he'd get on stage and sort of grab the mic quite often. We were all sort of broke, but having the time of our lives. And I just think the energy of the song. And so many the lyrics are just are just bang on, and again the the guitar elements Rob brought to it, the slow down and builds back up again at the end. It's just so much fun. Yeah. Yeah, some some great choices in there, lads. Um, you're sport for choice, actually, aren't you? You know, the Holloways had so many cracking tunes, uh, so many songs to be proud of. A fantastic band, and uh, we're really looking forward to the live shows. So. Um, Thanks so much for joining us on the Boys in the Band podcast today and uh, all the best for those live shows. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Guys, we'll speak to you soon. You're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. For more naughty nostalgia, check out our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages and make sure you hit subscribe to the podcast for more interviews like this.